Hi, welcome to In Limine, where we talk about the Constitution, justice, and criminal law. Um, today, we're privileged to have John Kariaku. I hope I pronounced your you name right. You did exactly right. Thank I've you. Been practicing it all morning and messing it up. Um, uh, John is a best-selling author of a number of books. Um, those include The Reluctant Spy, My Secret Life, and the CIA's War on Terror uh, from 2010. The Convenient Terrorist, Abu Zubeda. Zubeda, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, and The Weird Wonderland of America's Secret Wars. I love that subtitle. Uh, and then 2017, Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison. And I also understand you're an advocate of prison reform after your delightful experience. Very much so. Yeah, I, I share I think that pretty much you. everybody is when they, when they come out of prison. Our system is utterly broken. It's utterly, utterly broken. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were in, uh, were you in Pennsylvania, right? Pennsylvania, Central Pennsylvania Police called FCI Loretto. Uh, Federal Correction Institute Loretto. Correct. I, what was it like there? Uh, it was a shock at first. Uh, my attorneys at sentencing asked the judge to send me to a minimum security work camp. And uh, the prosecution had no objection. So she said, okay, uh, minimum security work camp. And what you do when you're assigned to a work camp, you, you literally just drive up there and knock on the door and say, I'm John Kiriakou. I'm here to turn myself in. So I did that. Well, all camps are connected. They're usually across the street from an actual prison because if there's a riot or a lockdown, the guys from the camp do the laundry, do the cooking, do the cleaning, that kind of thing. Otherwise, if you're at a camp, uh, you know, there, are no, there are no bars on the windows. The doors aren't locked. There are no fences or anything. You're free to come and go as you please. You're on your honor not to abscond, of course. And most guys work in town there's a university there, and uh, you know you sweep the floors or whatever. So, um, so I drove up there, and uh, with a whole gang of people, like my cousin and his son, two of my attorneys, two of my eleven attorneys, uh, a documentary film crew, and I knocked on the door, and they said, "Oh, you got to go across the street to the prison first, and they'll process you, and then they bring you back over here." I said, "Okay." So, uh, I went across the street to the to the prison with, you know, the double fences with the concertina wire and the guard towers and the whole nine yards. And I said, I'm John Kiriakou. I'm here to turn myself in. And so I had to go through a metal detector. And then they start bringing me, they brought me outside and then around to the back of the prison. And I said, no, no, I'm supposed to be at the camp across the street. And the guard laughed at me and said, not according to my paperwork, you're not. And I told myself, Take it easy. There's nothing you can do. If you raise a ruckus, they're going to put you in solitary. So I didn't say anything. It took me five days to get access to a phone. And I called uh, my lead attorney. And I said, I said, hey, they put me in the actual prison with the pedophiles and the drug kingpins and the mafia dons. What do I do? And he said, my God, well, we can file a motion, but... It'll be two years before we even get a hearing, and you'll be home by then. He said, I'm sorry, buddy. You're going to have to tough it out. And so wow. I decided that very moment, you're trained for this. I've lived in far, far worse places on earth than Loretto, Pennsylvania. And so I just 
kicked myself in the butt and said, all right, just deal with it. Wow. That's, so that's what I did. And for, for, for people who don't know, DOJ controls the Bureau of Prisons. That was a tough lesson that I learned. Yeah. DOJ controls the Bureau of Prisons, and the Bureau of Prisons answers to no one. They don't care what the judge says. They don't even care what their own prosecutors say. BOP sends people to whatever facility BOP wants to send people. I was fortunate in that they didn't send me to a communications management unit. Um, what they ended up doing, well, what, what ended up happening and what resulted in my third book was um, I had a, a group of, of about 600 people who had signed up for a, a mailing list that my lawyer had set up. And as I was leaving for prison, my lawyer said, when you get comfortable, just drop me a line and I'll send it around to the people on the mailing list just so that they know you're okay. I said, all right. I waited about six weeks until I got my bearings. And then I, I wrote what I, what I, what I called um, a letter from Loretto because I, I love the idea of Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. So I wrote a letter from Loretto and it was sort of a, a day in the life, right? Well, I didn't know that my lawyer was close friends with uh, Ariana Huffington. And so she put it like as a banner headline on the Huffington Post, and it went crazy. I got more than two million hits over the course of the next several days. And I ended up giving interviews to everybody from Jake Tapper, who drove to the prison to interview me, to NPR and Playboy and The Economist and The Atlantic Monthly and you name it, they immediately clamped down on my access to the outside world. So they moved me into what they called a modified CMU. So there was a five-day delay on my incoming and outgoing emails. Five days. Um, and they listened to my um, outgoing calls live rather than just to have them taped and, you know, if they felt like looking at them or listening to them that they would listen to them. It was all live monitored. And I speak Greek and I speak Arabic. So sometimes, like, when, if I'm talking to my kids or I was talking to my aunt or whatever, I would speak Greek. And they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> it's like, why? Because you're too stupid to speak Greek? I got in trouble once for, for calling uh, one of the guards a nimrod on the phone. It was a private conversation with my wife. And um, I got called down to the lieutenant's office. And when you hear your name, you know, report to the lieutenant's office, you're like, okay, guys, it's been good to know you. Take care of my stuff. And you go to solitary, and then eventually you're sent to a higher security prison because I called the guy Nimrod. And as soon as I went down to the lieutenant's office, this lieutenant who really was like the biggest asshole of anybody in the prison, he said, do you think I'm a Nimrod? No, first he said... Can I talk to you man to man? Which means I'm going to swear at you and I don't want you to report me for it. I said, sure, you can talk to me man to man. He goes, you think I'm a Nimrod? And I said, I don't know. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. I don't know you. But the other guy's a Nimrod. And it just got worse from there. Yeah, you can't, uh, you can't uh, peek yeah. their insecurities. No. Uh, and I would say that. You know, I, I, would, I would mock them. You know, the, the irony is that half the time they're so stupid they didn't realize they were being mocked. Yeah. That was always amazing to me. Yeah. 
One of them, I, I, I was being taken to an outside, uh, I had broken my pinky finger, so I was being taken to an outside uh, uh, medical consultation. And one of them said that he had gotten passed over for a GS4. And I said, like it's my business, right? I go, GS4? How do you buy food? And he goes, why? What were you? I said, I was a 15, and I could barely buy food. And they're like, ah, asshole. And then for, for people who don't know what the GS yeah. you know, ranking system is, that's government services. And it's like yeah, a, if, you're, if you're below, if you're a GS5 or below, like you're expected to be able to scrawl your X at the top of the paper, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, you have to have a, a bachelor's degree to be a 7, and uh, that's something that people I don't. It's incredible to me. I don't think people understand about American prison systems, and I didn't fully comprehend until I was in a Canadian uh, prison where they've got unionized guards who make six figures. Uh huh. And I was like, why is everybody so nice here? Right. right. And I feel like in all the federal institutions I've been in America, you know, this is generalization. There's good people and bad people everywhere. Yeah. But there's this, it, it's almost like it's the only place in their life that they have any power. Yeah, and that's it. And, and they own you, and all the and pettiness comes compare out. compare your, first of all, what you just said, um, Joe Bonanno, the, the longtime head of the Bonanno crime family, said exactly the same thing in his book, Man of Honor. He was arrested and held for something like six months in Canada, and he said they couldn't have been any more lovely to him. But in the United States, it's a whole different class of people. Uh, there's a book called In Defense of Flogging, uh, written by a professor at uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Um, his name is uh, Peter Moskos. And he says that the Bureau of Prisons is really nothing more than an employment agency for otherwise unemployable, rural, uneducated white men. That's why our prisons are in you know no man's land in the mountains out in the prairie they're, they're not near anything that can account for employment and so they tend to attract people who either flunked out of the local police academy or couldn't get into the local police academy in the first place people who left the military and have nowhere else to go people who have no education they live in farming areas but aren't farmers. And where else are you going to go? You become a prison guard. And it's the only place. You know, I said this one time and to a guard, and he was furious that I said it. But I said, you know, one of the things that I think you guys all have in common is in seventh grade, you were that skinny little kid who got bullied. Yeah. And you've only realized now that you have these jobs that you can bully somebody else. Yeah. And there's nothing that they can do about it. Yeah. And it hurt. It stung because it was true. Yeah. Yeah. And it, there's that, that whole American punitive mindset. Oh, yeah. And it's just not. I, 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 that was a big wake up for me when I first started visiting clients in jail is just how petty they <sighs> could be. And the, the, because people have just this view of it that it's, oh, yeah, the prison guards, it's all like running like you think it's going to be on TV. And it's just a. You know, and the federal oh, yeah. prisons compared to the state prisons. That's what everybody says. I've know. never seen a state prison, but that's what everybody says, that the feds are head and shoulders above what state prisons are. I can't even imagine it. Yeah. And did they, because I've had, you know, clients who've been like politically controversial and stuff, like a lot of hackers. And 
it, it always struck me that they they like throw them in the shoe, which is basically solitary, right. just because of who they are. Absolutely. And, and did you get thrown in the shoe at all, or do you think your celebrity protected you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and, and this was something that, that reared its head over and over and over again. And what it came down to, first of all, I was never thrown in the shoe. Oh, lucky man. They threatened me constantly. And then... Yeah, I was sort of adopted by the Italians when, when I was there. And when I say Italians, I mean named Gambino, Bonanno, Lucchese. You know, you get the idea. And so I sat at the Italian table in the cafeteria. I socialized with the Italians. I ate dinner with the Italians every night. So one of the Italians said to one of the guards, where are you going for the next quarter? And he said, I'm in Central One unit, which was where I lived. And the Italian said, oh, my buddy John lives in Central One. And the guard said, the CIA guy? Yeah. <laughs> and the guard said, and this guard had a reputation for being like particularly bad. Right. Big bully. He was the only guard in the entire prison that wore a stab vest underneath his, uh, his uniform because he was afraid of being shanked. Yeah. And he, he had a piece of masking tape that covered up his name. He was, he was known only as Blue. He, we didn't know what his real name was. So he said, oh, I never mess with that CIA guy. And the Italian said, really, why? And he said, because that's all I need. I mess with him, and I go out to my car at the end of my shift, and CNN's out there waiting for me. Yeah. And I said, exactly. And yeah. none of them ever messed with me. Yeah, none of them. Your celebrity protected you. It that's did. It the... protected me. Yeah, yeah, and I never expected any of that. I never planned for any of that. The honest to God's truth of the matter was that if they had let me go to the camp like I was supposed to go, I would have slept, swept floors for twenty three months, like they would have expected. I wouldn't have said a word to anybody. I would have just quietly read books, and then I would have gone home. But they're the ones that had to make a big production out of the whole thing. They'd love to make a production out of stuff. Yeah. And it's a lot about, I think, like publicity drives a lot of stuff. And, and Very much so. And I'll tell you another thing, because I think this is an important point that you're making. Just out of curiosity one day, because I was bored, I wrote a Freedom of Information Act request to the Bureau of Prisons for everything they had on me, everything. And 95% of what came back was just garbage. It was my medical records. It was my visitor's list, you know, my phone call list, stuff like that. But either somebody was like a mental defect in the Bureau of Prisons Freedom of Information Act office or somebody in that office took pity on me because they sent me back several documents that were very clearly stamped in red at the top and the bottom of the page. FOIA exempt, do not release to inmate. Oops. Yeah. And one of those things was a memo. It was an all-hands memo to everybody in the prison the week before I arrived there. And in these huge block letters, it said, Caution, inmate has access to the media. Wow. And that's really what it was all about. You would think that if they were running things properly, they and in our supposedly democratic republic that we have that they wouldn't mind the media because if you're doing it, what do they have to hide right what do they have to hide yeah yeah it was incredible to me and again 
the thought of contacting the media never occurred to me. Yeah. Until they made it an issue. Yeah. Oh, you're not going to be in the camp. You're going to be in the real prison. And then I said to, uh, on my very first full day there, I had to meet with my, whatever they call themselves, your, your case, oh, case worker, worker or something. whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. And I said, listen, um, I, I've, got a, I've got a bachelor's degree in Middle Eastern studies. I have a master's degree in policy analysis. And I finished my PhD casework, uh, or I mean uh, coursework at UVA in international affairs. So if you want me to teach you know, a, a, a GED class or whatever, I'm happy to do it. And he screams at me, if I wanted you to teach a fucking class, I would ask you to teach a fucking class. And they made me a janitor in the chapel. I was like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I know how to I'm do not that. Gonna, I'm not going to help you run your prison. Yeah, there's that. That's an interesting like take on the uh, or uh, expression of American anti-intellectualism yeah. and that resentment. That yeah. um, I think part of that feeds is behind the, 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 the Trumpism. But I, I don't. What's the big deal? What's like, the big deal? What's the big deal? I'm offering to help you. Yeah, yeah. And, but uh, the disrespect was just incredible. And the anger. Just incre- and the anger. That's it, right. It sounds like there's a lot. That's more, right. There's a lot of anger in those places. And, yeah. Uh, so I was making like uh, I was making like sixty five cents an hour, and the chaplain liked me because I was the only person working in the chapel that wasn't a pedophile. Right. So uh, his budget was tight, and the prison was overcrowded. The prison's built for like six hundred and eighty people. We had fourteen hundred and twenty five people in bunks in the hallways, and it was just a mess. So I said to him, look, chaplain, I said, I don't want to work here, and I don't need the 65 cents an hour. So if you want to just keep me on the books and give my 65 cents to the next guy, and I just don't come to work anymore, that's cool with me. And so I took the time to write another book. Oh, what, what, uh, which one was that? Well, that, that was the doing time like a spy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't intend, to, I, I didn't plan to write any book yeah. while I was there. It's just that they made it so easy. Like, they gave me so much material yeah. that I, I couldn't not write the book. It was just crazy. And, and so what, I haven't read the book, but I'm curious now. Like, you said, so you were obviously the CIA officer mm-hmm. for years. And mm-hmm. what they, uh, for those of you who don't know, the reason John was uh, sent to prison is you took a, a plea uh, uh, there was like a four count indictment the first five, count, five, five count, count indictment three counts of espionage one count of violating the intelligence identities protection act of 1981 and one count of making a false statement I hadn't committed espionage what I did is I blew the whistle on the CIA's torture program in an interview on ABC News so they gave me three counts of espionage for that, that that's not espionage no it's not, it's You're not, not. you have to be uh, conspiring with the agent of a foreign exactly. power um, exactly. And so they dropped those charges. The, the false statements charge, we were never exactly sure what that was. Um, and so they dropped that, too. They always tacked that on. That was 1001? Yeah, 1001. Exactly. They always tacked that on. So I took a plea to violating the Intelligence Identities Protection Act of, of 1981. I confirmed the name of a former CIA colleague to a reporter, and the reporter never made the name public. Never, the name was never revealed but they hit me for it one of one of the things that struck me this morning is uh, um i've had a little bit of experience with the espionage act with uh your uh, friend and colleague just radick oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she's a great lawyer she um, is 
um, I was researching the history of the Espionage Act, and what I thought was interesting is that you can draw a straight line from the Alien and Sedition Act. Oh, yes. And those political, very political oh, yeah. prosecutions. 100% political to in the beginning. You, mm-hmm. because they actually lifted some of the language from the Espionage Act uh, and, uh, from the Alien and Sedition Acts and stuck it in the, in the Espionage Act. Act in 1917 uh, when there's all this kind of uh, uh, hysteria about uh, Russians protesting World War One and all that That's right. stuff for people who are into like First Amendment law. A lot of people don't realize that the First Amendment cases come out of that 1970 period. With, it's like Schenck and yes. uh, leading up to Abrams. But, uh, uh, and somebody blew off the front of uh, Attorney General Palmer's House. Right over here on our street. Is it right over here? I, I went to look at it a couple of weekends ago. I had read about it, you know, all my life, and I, I wanted to check it out. And it's just somebody's house. Wow. Yeah. That's, that was like, did they ever catch them? Like the, no, they never caught them. At the, and the, but they, they cracked down on people like Emma Goldman because of it. Because of it, yeah. yeah. It was a they big... never caught the guy that put the bomb on the porch. And there was a young, uh, uh, wasn't not an FBI agent, but a young, I don't even know what department he was, a young man named J. Edgar Hoover. That's right. Who led that in, in investigation. The, uh, the Bureau of Investigation, it was called at the time. Right, and then he... Shoots up like a superstar. That's right. And then what they... they 48 they, years. 48 years. And then, uh, yeah, no one could... No president could take him out. No. Until the FBI did. That's with, right. With... Uh, who was it? Uh, what was it? The Mark... Uh, the second in command of the Mark FBI. Mark Felt. Mark Felt, yeah, who was deep throat. Yep. And that's something I, I feel like is not... Uh, you've had some experience with the FBI. It's not appreciated about the FBI. I no. look at them... They hate him at the FBI. They hated Nixon, but they're always in... American politics always on both sides because they still are they still are and people think like well like after the church commission people think everything was fixed but yeah. the, it was fixed for about five minutes yeah yeah and then the FISA court which mm-hmm. I cannot stand I think that's an inquisitorial oh unconstitutional my God, I couldn't agree more abomination mm-hmm. and like everything that was they tried to do with the church commission and fixing things actually I think made it worse because that Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, for those of you who don't know, it's a, um, it's a top secret sort of, it's almost like a quasi-military court. I don't yeah. even think it's an Article Three court constitutionally. No. I, I think it needs to be attacked on that, I agree that front. You. And it sat on, it was actually in the DOJ building for years. On the top floor. On the top floor yeah. before uh-huh. they, 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 oh, maybe we should move it because we allegedly have a... Uh, independent it's supposed um, to be independent. independent it's like the office of the part of the u.s pardon attorney the office of the u.s pardon attorney is supposed to be independent of the department of justice it was when it was created it was originally supposed to sit in the white house and later in the in the old executive office building it's always been at doj always yeah there's supposed to be there is supposed to be a chinese wall between doj and the office of the u.s pardon attorney and there's not yeah it's, it's sort of like the uh um it's, it's on paper, right? The only, the only Chinese, Chinese wall thing is on, on paper right. because so much of it, and I think people don't appreciate it, just not, not because people don't, are stupid or anything, it's just they haven't experienced it like we have, is that so much of this is what's going on is, is not textual. It's, it's not anywhere on paper. And, mm-hmm. and so I, this is my little pet peeve with law professors. It's like, you know, you're sitting at your desk and you're reading these decisions. You think that's the law, but what's actually going on with the law is I think 90 at least 90% unspoken and is that sort of inside baseball like sort of social club like mm-hmm. every federal court I've been in DOJ's had offices in the courthouse right and, oh and, my god and, and, and it's such and, and most federal a lot of federal judges are, are 
former federal prosecutors. Oh, most of them are. Yeah. Yeah. It's upwards of 80 something percent. And so you walk in, in into any federal case as a defense lawyer, it's it's automatically stacked against you. And that's what you you have to overcome among a million other things. Mm-hmm. And um, well, between charge stacking and oh, yeah. venue shopping and DOJ's unlimited, literally unlimited budget. Yep. People don't stand a chance. Thank you know, you. in discovery, we found something that was uh, very important um, right after my arrest. DOJ turned over 15,000 pages of classified documents that I would, could ostensibly use to defend myself. And we found a memo from John Brennan to Eric Holder. John Brennan at the time was the Deputy National Security Advisor for Counterterrorism and an old nemesis of mine from the CIA. We always hated each other. We go back to 1990. Because he headed the CIA at one point too, right? Oh, later on. Yeah, later on. Yeah, okay. no, he was a GS-15 nobody when I, when I <laughs> met him. So Brennan wrote a, a memo to Holder and said, charge him with espionage. And then Holder wrote back and said, my people don't think he committed espionage. And then Brennan wrote back and said, charge him anyway and make him defend himself. Uh, this is 2012? 2012. Because you did the interview in 2007, and Correct. DOJ didn't prosecute or do anything for... No, and there's a story there I'll tell you in two seconds, yeah. but um, what they did is they charged me with espionage, and as soon as I went bankrupt, they dropped the espionage charges. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, war they, of attrition. They waited. War of attrition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I gave that interview to ABC News and to the New York Times in December of 2007, uh, the, the CIA filed a crimes report against me the very next day saying that I had revealed classified information. My position was that it is actually a felony in the United States to classify a program that is illegal for the purpose of keeping it from the American people. And torture is illegal. I don't care what John, you, and Jay Bybee say. Okay. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. It's under unconstitutional. The Eighth yeah. It's a violation of the Federal Torture Act of 1946. Um, it's a violation of the United Nations Convention Against Torture and Degrading and Inhumane Treatment. It's just plain illegal. So um, the FBI investigated me from December of 07 until December of 08, and they sent my attorneys a declination letter in December of 08 saying that I had uh, not broken the law. And so my wife and I actually went out to dinner that night to celebrate. I had no idea that three weeks later, when Barack Obama became president, that they would secretly reopen the case against me. And for the next three years, I had no idea that my phones were tapped, that my emails were being intercepted, that teams of FBI agents were surveilling us. They, we learned later, they, they went into church with us on Sundays and sat in the pew right behind us. Like, to, to learn what? Well, they're also like I, one of the things I notice with those kinds of investigations is that a lot of times they're just like they're they're um, I think they're like like in big law there's a phrase yeah. you um, you churn you're churning your belly sure that's like an expensive investigation everybody's getting you know expensive lots cap, of overtime lots of overtime mm-hmm. and it's this and that's one of the, I think the problems with the, the the system is there's all these incentives to churn hours and they the, and DOJ they um, they keep statistics on uh, trial wins like it's a sport. Oh, yeah. In fact, I was on their little ticker yep. at the bottom of, the, uh, of their uh, website for years afterwards. Tom Drake was another one. Oh, Tom's great, yeah. Tom, poor Tom Drake. They charged him with, you know, 
150 years worth of, of crimes, and then they ended up dropping all the charges, provided that he took a plea to accessing his Facebook page from an NSA computer, and they gave him 18 months of unsupervised probation. And, uh, and they had him on the ticker that they convicted this NSA officer for misuse of a, an NSA computer. I, like, come on. I almost think that they Morons. should they should statutorily ban DOJ from being able to do press except for like a press release upon conviction yeah. and that they need to remove these these um, sort of like careerist statistical rankings like it's a batting average because you can't the number of convictions does not equal justice. No, certainly not. And I'll tell you another thing. The FBI agent who actually physically put the handcuffs on me was Peter Strzok. And, uh, yeah, and at first he asked one of the FBI agents, he didn't ask, he said, tell me he implicated himself. And the FBI agent said, not really. And Strzok said, turn around. And he cuffed me and walked me, you know, 10 feet to a, to a metal bench and then uncuffed one wrist and then cuffed the, the, my arm to the bench, my wrist to the bench. And I sat there for, for hours. Well, years later, I get a call from some reporter at the Washington Post. And he said, hey, I was hoping I could get a comment from you about Peter Strzok. And I said, Peter Strzok? I said, all I know about Peter Strzok is what I've read in the Washington Post. What do you want from me? And he says, well, Peter Strzok is the guy that actually arrested you. And I said, what? This is years later. <laughs> I said, I had no idea that was Peter Strzok. And he said, yeah, he's being escorted out of the building by security right now. He's being fired by the FBI. I said, oh, I'll give you a quote. I'll give you a quote. I said, Washington's a tough town and karma's a bitch, yeah. is what I said. And they printed it. Well, now we're learning from James Bamford, who's one of the most brilliant and accomplished national security journalists in, you know, the last 40 years, uh, and, and who wrote the definitive book on NSA. He had a book that came out day before yesterday, on Wednesday, uh, saying that during Peter Strzok's tenure as the director of counterintelligence for the FBI, the FBI lost 10, count them, 10 Chinese sources because there was a Chinese mole inside Peter Strzok's division. Yeah. Well, while Peter Strzok was worried about me blowing the whistle on the CIA's torture program, he allowed Chinese intelligence to run rampant through his, his division at the FBI. Yeah, I think there's that... The, the public doesn't fully appreciate the, the sort of, like, incompetency and... and, no. and the, they, they see these shows like FBI on CBS. Oh, yeah. And, and, and one of the stranger things I'm finding right now is that... I mean, we're both old enough to remember when the Democrats hated the FBI sure. and the Republicans. My God, I talk about that all the time. It's insane how it switched, right? It's insane. Yeah. Yes. It defies any logic and, to but me. It seems like the FBI is fine with it. It doesn't matter. Oh, no, no, as they're, long as they're we're, perfectly fine. we're getting our, mm -hmm. our funding and everything, we'll play both sides. I yeah. mean, where were they on January 6th? Right? Exactly. Like, like where we're, were they? Home we're, watching it on TV. That's watching where they it were. on TV. They were waiting to see which side prevailed. Mm -hmm. and, and, that's, and they've, you know, that, that people, it, it's just strange to me that people, you know, they, a lot of people know about the Martin Luther King letter where they sent in and they said, right. you, you know, Martin commits suicide or we're going to reveal all your affairs, Right. right. 
Uh, but like people seem to have forgotten the COINTELPRO, which sure. was only exposed because sure. uh, it was like seven college students burglarized a... In Media, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I met one of those guys once. That guy was Heroes. Great. Yeah, Heroes. Yeah. Heroes. He told me about a, um, the FBI coming to his house and just like this narrow escape where they're interviewing him and he's like, oh my God, am I going to get popped? And then after that, he like split. He like got through it. But... In fact, I think he, he still had the coffee machine in his garage. <laughs> that's how close he came. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there were that. That's a fascinating story because that yeah. that's another form of whistleblowing, just like what it is. What you do because what, they burglarized the office, but here they they're they're discovering all this. We would never have any idea that that this illegal COINTELPRO uh, was was being perpetrated by the FBI all across America had they not gone into that FBI field office in Media, Pennsylvania, and burglarized the place. Betty Metzger, I think her name, her first name is Betty, has an amazing book called uh, The Burglary that is the blow-by-blow of the decision to do that operation and then what happened afterwards. Oh, i got to check that out. Because my, my understanding that they had a really, actually kind of, it wasn't easy for them to get it into the press until... No, nobody was, wanted it. Nobody wanted it. Oh, it's stolen documents from the FBI. We don't want to make the FBI angry, right? Yeah. So nobody would publish it. Yeah, yeah, and then finally... But, you know, Dan Ellsberg says the same thing about the Pentagon Papers. He said the Pentagon Papers all over the place. He's, George McGovern said, I don't want to touch this. George McGovern? Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, the only person on Capitol Hill who had the guts to say anything was Mike Gravel, and it cost him his Senate seat in, uh, in Alaska in 1974. But and- the Post didn't want it. The Post only finally picked up the story because the Times ran it. And that was the big competition back then. Yeah, they had to. They was, it, wasn't, it wasn't for noble reasons. No, it, it wasn't was, for noble reasons. It was for market-based reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and you see there sort of the, 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 um, the social structure of things. And I don't want to sound like a Marxist because I'm not. I'm a right. capitalist. And, right, you know, sure. and I love this country like you. you know, I consider you a patriot. I do. I, I'm a patriot. Yeah, yeah, I very much consider you a patriot in, 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 in that tradition, the mm-hmm. Bill of Rights tradition. And, and We're either a nation of laws or we're not. Yeah. That's yeah, it. That's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. And here the, you see how the social aspect of that and the quote-unquote establishment, because they're really very sort of, they don't want to, they don't want to, um, what do you call it? What's the metaphor? They don't want to rustle their bed or, or whatever, like the Post. And yeah. they've got close relationships with all these agencies. And, and, and like one of the things that's like recently, like, struck me about DOJ and everyone's like Merrick Garland okay he's the hero of the left and but his DOJ leaks like a oh my god yeah and I am not a Matt Gates fan but the one thing that drives me crazy is the criminal defense lawyers have you seen the Matt Gates indictment no. Right, because there, there isn't is one. But they've been leaking yes. really nasty mm-hmm. accusations whatever the merits on a, on a pending federal criminal investigation now for like Two years. Where is the outrage on the left about that? Right. I mean, I don't think left or right or whomever. DOJ should not, should not at all. I think be talking to the media like that. I think it needs oh, to be restricted. You are absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, uh, several months before my arrest, let me think now. The weather was warm, so this must have been like six, five, six months before my arrest. I get an email. I was working on the. Uh, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, staff at the time, I was the the head investigator, and uh, I get a call from this 
reporter from the Washington Times. Ah, the Washington right? Times. And I just deleted it. Yep. But this son of a gun was persistent. He kept, he kept asking me for lunch. So I mentioned it to my boss, and he said, well, he said, go ahead and have lunch. Just see what he wants. So, uh, so I, I met with him, and it was a perfectly nice lunch. We talked about the Middle East, and we talked about Turkish elections and Israeli elections. And I was like, okay, well, thank you. This was really great. It was nice meeting you. And I, I was going to leave. And he's like, no, 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 that's not why I invited you to lunch. Well, we'd already been sitting there for an hour and a half. So he said, I have a source inside the FBI and they're investigating you because they think that you're the source for the Sam Adams project. What was the Sam Adams project? And I said, what's the Sam Adams project? And he said, uh, it's a leak to the Guantanamo defense attorneys. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never met a Guantanamo defense attorney in my life. And he said, wow, that's really not the response I was expecting. I said, I appreciate your concern, but I honestly don't know what you're talking about. Well, in fact, he was right. They believed that I was, I, I had never heard of this before, but they believed that I was the source for this, I think it's called the Sam Adams Project. This, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. The Sam Adams Project. But I wasn't. It turned out that this, there was a journalist at um, The Intercept by the name of Matthew Cole. Ah, uh, The Intercept. Yeah. <laughs> the Intercept, which I think is a division of the FBI. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They, uh... And Matthew Cole um, said he was writing a book about the CIA kidnapping of a terrorist suspect by the name of Abu Omar. Abu Omar was innocent. And almost two dozen CIA officers kidnapped him off the street in Milan and rendered him to Egypt where he was tortured. I remember that. And then the Egyptians came back to us and said, we think he's the wrong guy. And they let him go. And he was the wrong guy. So I didn't know anything at all about that operation. So Matthew Cole emails me. He said, I'm a reporter for The Intercept. Um, can you introduce me to any of these dozen people? And I, I said, I don't have any idea who these people were. Then he sends me a second email with another dozen names. And I said, look, you clearly know this story better than I do. Kidnapping was not my thing at the agency. I don't know anything about rendition operations. I, I just don't know anything about Abu Omar. And then he said, on page whatever it was, 165 of your book, you talk about this guy that you used to work for. I think his name is, I'm going to say John. And I said, oh, you mean John Smith? I said, I don't know whatever happened to him. He's probably retired and living in Virginia somewhere. That was a felony. Oh, that's... Because I confirmed the name. Oh, that's what they went after. See, I went after you. That was where they went after me. Yeah, that's what it was. It was that innocent. Well, it turned out that Matthew Cole was never writing any book about Abu Omar. It was all fake. He was secretly working as an investigator for Human Rights Watch. So he turned all those names, plus John Smith's name, actual name, he turned it all over to Human Rights Watch and their lead investigator, John Shifton. I know John. Sifton. I know John Sifton. Sifton. I know him personally. 
John Sifton, in turn, turned it over to the Guantanamo defense attorneys. And the Guantanamo defense attorneys filed a, a, a request with the judge at Guantanamo saying, we want to interview these people. The judge recognizes these names as covert CIA officers. He turns the names over to the FBI, and the FBI reverse engineers where they got the names. So Sifton ratted me out, and Matthew Cole ratted me out, and I ended up in prison. Wow. On a side note, uh, my legal career starts interning for the Charles P. Sifton, who's the father of, of, of John. And, wow. Um, that's the, I mean, I haven't talked to John in probably like a decade, but um, that, that's an interesting... Um, it was bad. And The Intercept allowed somebody to represent themselves as a journalist with mm -hmm. their organization in order to basically conduct an undercover investigation for you. Boy, that's yeah. another story. How unethical is that? Yeah, they've got a long list of stuff like that. Like yeah. everybody And it wasn't just me. It was Terry Albury, the FBI whistleblower. He went to prison because of the intercept. Reality winner. Went to yeah, prison because of the went, intercept. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Hale, the, the drone whistleblower, went to prison because of the intercept. I met with their. I was. Uh, I rep Dan Hale for a little bit wow. with Jess, and then you know when he wanted to take a plea, you, you know we kind of yeah, we did sort of turn just, it over. Yeah, because I'm just a trial guy. I'm just like right. in there breaking dishes and yelling and pounding on the table kind of thing. Yeah. But um, I met with the general counsel for the Intercept, and they. It was just. Um, and I went in with a little attitude. I went in with jeans good. and t-shirt kind of thing, right? Good, you good. Know, like punk lawyer kind of thing. I, I don't know if I do that these days, but uh, um, they were so uh, unreceptive to contributing to his defense or anything, and they thought that you know me coming in there just like because I was doing things like one of the interesting things to me about the Espionage Act as I was talking to Steve Laddick about it during this prosecution. And I'm, I'm a little autistic. I always need to know the basics of things, right? And I'm a sure. big con law guy. So I'm looking at the Espionage Act, and I can't see, uh, you know, in our, supposedly in our United States Constitution, it's supposed to be you know, one of enumerated powers, and Congress could only pass statutes that are explicitly listed in the Constitution. Now the New Deal kind of blew that up, mm -hmm. right? But the first thing I always check is, okay, what gave Congress the authority yes. to pass this act? And I can't find it in the act. I can't find it in the case law. So I asked Steve Laddick, I said, Steve, you know, you're the expert in this. Can you just tell me, like, what, uh, you know, what authorizes Congress to pass the Espionage Act? And he couldn't give me a straight answer. So I'm like, oh, I want to go challenge the constitutionality of the Espionage Act. And Daniel Hale's federal defenders, and I call them federal surrenders, told me I was crazy. Right? But I'm like... You're not crazy. In fact... In fact, Daniel Ellsberg would agree with you 1,000%. This is something that, that he's been doing a lot lately. He and I talked a lot when, um, when Jeffrey Sterling, the CIA whistleblower, was yeah. in prison. Dan really, really wanted uh, Sterling to appeal beyond the court of appeals because Dan believes, as do I and a lot of other people, and I think you, you do too, that the Espionage Act is unconstitutionally broad. It's yeah. unconstitutionally vague. And it got even broader and vaguer in my case when Judge Leonie Brinkema of the Eastern District of Virginia said that she would not respect a precedent set by Tom Drake's 
judge in the Federal District of Maryland um, and said that in my case, uh, the prosecution didn't have to prove criminal intent. And that's insane. That's I, like that's insane. insane. That's like it going is. against centuries of the common law and yes. the most basic fundamental thing about our criminal justice and system. My attorney jumped up and said, "Your Honor, are you saying that a person can accidentally commit espionage?" And she said, "That's exactly what I'm saying." And oh, she looked shit. at me and she said, "Mr. Kiriaku, you either did it or you didn't do it, and I think you did it." That's what she said in a hearing. Uh huh. I I knew I had. Literally no chance. In fact, we were walking out of the courtroom, and I said to the lead attorney, who was a legend, Plato Kacharis, legendary figure in, in Washington law, I said, what just happened? And he said, we just lost the case. That's what happened. Yeah, he was. It's, he's legendary because he knows how to speak the truth. Like, yeah. That's right. Like, yeah. That's like, what are you going to do? But you know, yeah. on, the, on the flip side of that, and this is something I, I think is uh, one way to combat this, but like, again, there's all these barriers to it. Is that's what the jury is for. Exactly. That's but, and I said that, and Plato said, yes, but the problem is you can only appeal after you lose the case, yep. and you're going to appeal from prison. If we take a plea, it's going to be short. If you lose at, at trial, he said, you're realistically looking at 12 to 18 years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you made the rational choice that, that most people make. Well, I'll tell you one thing that, that, like I said earlier, I had 11 attorneys. I'm not exaggerating. There were actually 11 of them. And one of them was the head of white-collar defense at Aiken, Gump, and Strauss, another legend here in Washington. His name is Mark McDougall. I love the guy like a brother. I liked and respected him the most out of all my lawyers. And I had A-list lawyers. But he got in my face and yelled at me one time uh, because DOJ made their best and final offer. 30 months, I do 23. And I decided to turn it down. And I said, they, they, the lawyers came over to the house 7 o'clock in the morning. I put on a pot of coffee. And I said, listen, we've been up all night long, my wife and I. We decided to turn it down. I didn't do anything wrong. And as soon as I can get in front of a jury, they're going to see how ridiculous this is. And Mark got right in my face. And he said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you think this is about justice. And it's not about justice. It's about mitigating damage. Take the deal. And I realized then that he was right. Yeah. I took the deal. Yeah. No, that's that's. And it. then another one, another one of the attorneys, uh, Bob Trout, awesome guy, a real Southern gentleman. He said, "Look, this can be a blip in your life, yep, or it can be the defining event of your life. Make it the blip." Yeah, yeah, and that's that's. So I, I took the deal. That's the calculus, and that's why. But getting back to Dan Ellsberg, he wanted he wanted Jeffrey Sterling to go all the way to the Supreme Court. To at least get the Supreme Court to chop on the constitutionality of the uh, of the Espionage Act. In my case, Judge Brinkema actually defined espionage in a way that had never been defined before. She said, "Espionage is the act of providing national defense information to any person not entitled to receive it." Period. She erased the foreign power aspect of it. Yes. Huh? Yeah. Period. Yeah. So, but, but judges I, don't make law. Right. <laughs> so I didn't stand a chance, and neither did anybody coming after me. Yeah. And, and a lot of people came after me. So um, when Jeffrey Sterling, just, he, he just couldn't fight that fight any longer, and he dropped his appeal, 
rather than to go on banc at the at the Fourth Circuit. Uh, Dan <laughs> released classified information on the American nuclear weapons program on Twitter. He wrote a book, didn't get it cleared. Book was published, an amazing history of the nuclear weapons program, and then tweeted the most classified stuff, <laughs> and then said, "Will somebody please arrest me?" Right, because he's ninety-three years old, and he doesn't care anymore. And somebody has to appeal the Espionage Act to the Supreme Court. Brilliant! I didn't know he did that. Yeah, that's brilliant. But nobody will arrest him because of it, the social dynamic and the power. Absolutely right. And you, if they arrested Daniel Ellsberg, that's going to be on all hell's going to break loose. All hell's going to break loose, and all guys that, a bona fide American hero. Yeah, and they have to relitigate. You're almost like relitigating the Pentagon Papers and that whole that's, thing. That's exactly what it would be. And they're afraid. That's mm-hmm. that's interesting that because he, he induced fear on the other side. He did, and that that shows that it's not like we're not like in some sort of like hopeless state. We're in a, a tough state, fighting this 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 kind of uh, whatever you call it, the the social aspect of it, and their 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 whole uh, worldview, which we don't share. Mm-hmm. Like, which seems to be very contrary to the Bill of Rights. I, I always, I'm always saying, like, you know, the the, the bill, of, the philosophy of the Bill of Rights is not trust the government. Right. Just go through them. Go through each one. You know, First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of association, Second Amendment, right, right, whatever you think of it, right to bear arms. That's right. Third Amendment, no quartering of British soldiers in, you know, soldiers in in, in civilian homes. Which I want to bring the first. Third Amendment case, because I think what the FBI is doing with the, uh, you know, the Rule 41 search warrants? Yeah. They expanded it now so that they can basically put, like, surveillance malware on any computer that they think is related to a crime. So they've gotten, people didn't notice this, it was a rule change about, like, like a few years back, and they basically, now a magistrate judge anywhere, like, say, the Eastern District of Virginia which for those people who don't know, I call it consider a national security hellhole. It's yeah, like, they, they call it the espionage court. Yeah, it is the espionage no court. No espionage act defendant has ever won a case in the Eastern District of Virginia. Oh, I, my, I, I see why. Like my first experience with it, uh, with, 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 was Daniel Hale, I think it was. There was all these unspoken procedural barriers just for oh, me yeah. to, to get in like pro hoc vice because I wasn't, that just means like uh, I'm not admitted oh, yeah, to the yeah. court, but for the matter only. Yeah. They... Um, I had to have local counsel that had to show up to every hearing. Now, yes. for people who don't understand the dynamics of the financials of these kind of cases, where you're trying to do something for no money, and um, you don't have a lot of money. First of all, you're spending a bunch of money just traveling down to, to Virginia. That's super expensive. Mm-hmm. And to, to pay for that counsel for something that's just like trivial, like a status conference, right? Mm-hmm. I found that the Eastern District was full of that. And then I couldn't notice how... All the defense contractors are down there. There's all this money flowing around. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is, out of all the federal district courts in the entire country I've ever had to get into, it is the hardest court just to get in pro hoc. Mm-hmm. It is the one that I think is the closest uh, to, the, to, to the point of just like the French kissing the, the, the military industrial aspect. Without a doubt. Yeah. And look, look at who's in the Eastern District of Virginia. It's the home of the Pentagon, yep. the CIA, uh, and literally every one of the top 12 defense contractors. Yeah. And that's, you know, that goes back to the Constitution's venue clause, which people like, are always like, oh, a venue clause just means, uh, for people who don't know, it's just that uh, all federal criminal trials have to be in the state and the district where the crime occurred. Right. And the point of that was to try to avoid that kind of you know, social club dynamic that's already just going to condemn you before you're even there because yeah. 
the, the revolutionaries, they, you get arrested in Philadelphia, but you do a jury trial in London, it's a very, very different thing. Oh, yeah. And down in EDVA, I don't, I don't even, like, it's not even an independent judiciary when it comes to that kind of stuff. No way. I'll tell you something funny, too. Um, at the time of my, uh, what, what was going to be my trial, uh, my best friend's wife's uncle was introduced to me. He was O.J. Simpson's jury consultant. Oh, wow. And besides O.J. Simpson, he did George Zimmerman. He did William Kennedy Smith. All these major, you know, headline-grabbing cases. And he had never lost a case. So he was very, very expensive. But because this was my best friend's wife, um, he agreed to help me uh, for free. Wow. So we wow, got that's him. a score. It was, it was a score. Yeah. We got him a security clearance, which was tough. Yeah. Uh, it was another thing that we had to fight over. We got, we got a call from the prosecution that uh, the White House says that Kiriakou has enough cleared lawyers. And my lawyer said, who at the White House said that? John Brennan said that? How about if we call the Washington Post and tell them what the White House is saying about Kiriakou's lawyers? Next day, he's got a security clearance. So he came up, went through all the documents, and I, I still remember sitting around the enormous table in the, in the law firm's conference room, and he said, if we were in any other district in America, I would say, let's go for it. We're going to win this yeah. thing. But the Eastern District of Virginia, he said, your jury is going to be made up of people who work for the Pentagon and the CIA and defense contractors or their relatives he said, you can't possibly get a fair trial in the Eastern District of Virginia. He said, I can't believe I'm going to say it, but take the deal. Yeah, and that's, that's and from that it. one of the best jury consultants in the country. Yeah, he was the best. Yeah, yeah. He that, was the best. And that's true. That, that's it. Like, and that's why Assange is not going oh, yeah. to get he a fair trial. He doesn't stand a chance. doesn't stand a chance. Yeah. No. No, he's gonna, that's not going to be good. And they're going to throw him in the shoe. Sure they will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You notice that they promised not to put him in a CMU, a communications management unit. They didn't say anything about the shoe. And I'll tell you something, and this is what I've told his attorneys. I, I'm in touch with his attorneys here in Washington yeah. and in London. Yeah. I said, first of all, I explained that the Bureau of Prisons answers to nobody. Yeah. They don't care what the judge says. They don't care what the prosecutors say. They're going to put him wherever they decide to put him. So the prosecutors can promise every judge in, in the U.K., that they're not going to put him in the CMU, that's not their promise to make. But even if they don't put him in the CMU, all they need to put him in the shoe for years, right? We've had yeah. people in solitary confinement for, for 44 years in this country, as long as 44 years. All they have to do is say, well, you know what? Some prisoner came up to us and said he overheard two guys saying that they're going to they're gonna shank uh, Assange. So quote-unquote, for his own oh, safety, yeah. they're going to put him in solitary, and he's going to spend the rest of his life in there. And, and for, for people who don't know this, the United Nations uh, considers solitary confinement a form, a form of, torture. of torture. Anything more than 14 days is, yeah. a, is a form of torture. And if you, if you think it's not, uh, try locking yourself in a closet just for 24 hours. That's right. And uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's uh, totally inhumane. And they do it to a lot of our, like our hacker clients who haven't, haven't done really anything. They, they, Marty Gottesfeld yeah, Marty is Marty. a great example. Yeah. I'm in close touch with Marty. Marty, Marty the worst that Marty did 
yeah. was a, a directed denial of service attack. Yeah, yeah. On a on a website. Yeah, we repped Marty. Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for a while. And then he, I, fi- he fired us. And there's, a, there's a good Peacock uh, documentary. I the, like him. Yes, there I, is. I, I like him. We had a deal for... That's one of the few guys I've ever told to take the deal, because I'm usually a trial guy. We had a, a, a year for him. And, <gasps> a year? Right, but he... I got to respect him for this. Like, he... Um, like, one of the tensions was he wanted... He really was wanted to get press and, you know, further the cause. And I respect that. But sure. I, I said to him at one point, I'm, I'm not a pu- publicist, Right. But we had a year, and he turned it down. He turned down a year. I did not know that. Oh yeah, he got, and then he got ten. Yeah, right? ten. And then, it, but and, then, then the whole ten is in the CMU. Yeah, it's all in the CMU, which is again, he didn't like deserve that. No, you know, no, and, he didn't. And I was, I saw a lot of the, um, you know, discovery in that case, obviously. And he, people like, you know, they always blowing up the story, right? He didn't really take that hospital down. He didn't take no. down any of the medical stuff. He no, 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 like, no, no. This yeah. is just the fundraising website. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, and so he got a really raw deal. Yeah, but he like, sure did. yeah. I, I mean, um, you know, he was stubborn, and he well, he got his NBC Peacock documentary, which. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, Marty, I, I, I know, uh, I know well. And uh, tell him I say hi. Actually, I sure will. Uh, yeah, I hear from him once or twice a week. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. good, good, good. So, and, you know, the funny thing is he is still fighting as hard today yeah, as yeah. he was at the very beginning of this whole thing. And he's going to be out in a year and eight months. Oh, my God. Time flies. Yeah. Oh, my God. He, uh, I remember when he went to uh, Cuba. <laughs> yeah, he, he tried. Yeah, he tried. And then uh, I, had, cause he disapp- I didn't know he was going to go. And he just, like, disappeared. And then when was it? There's like when was it, a couple months later or something like that. I got a phone call from them because they'd been picked up by a Disney cruise, cruise ship. ship off the coast of uh, Cuba. And uh, so I, you know, I helped bring him back to you know through the port of Miami and all that stuff like that. But he uh, had a hanging judge too. He had Slade Gorton's brother. Who's Slade Gorton? I don't. Uh, he was the senior senator from uh, Washington State. Yeah, you see that people don't get this. The club with the federal. It's judges. all. They're all connected. Yeah, they're all connected, and it, and it, and it's like. This myth that the uh, system is stacked in favor of the criminal defendant is the oh, most please. ludicrous, Just ludicrous insane. thing. You, you know, uh, um, boy, Marty. Yeah, he's in the shoe. He only gets doesn't he get like uh, one fifteen minute call a week or something yeah. like that? Something insane like yeah. that. And and, you, and what he does is he sends an email to his wife and two attorneys and me. And he's, it's for his one 15-minute phone call. So whoever answers first is the person he talks to. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, he's hardcore, man. And it's funny. The first time he called me, and we had been corresponding for years, but the first time he called me, I was like, oh, my God, it's Marty. And I saw the number, and it's a, from a federal prison. Yeah. It's, it's in Terre Haute, Indiana. It's, you know, the, it used to be death row. He's living on death row. They built a new death row and converted the old one into the CMU. New, so improved it's, death row. It's miserable. Yeah, the new and improved death row. So um, all he wanted to talk about was, like, you know, who won the playoff game and uh, what books am I reading? And, I'm, and I kept saying, are you okay? Are you okay? What can I send you? Do you need any books? Do you need any magazines? How's your health? And he didn't want to talk about any of that stuff. He just wanted to have a conversation with somebody, like about normal daily life. Right, because we're social human beings. We're social animals, and just cutting, your, cutting people off from that, that's yeah. the torture. You know, the, the New York Times Magazine, I'll never forget this. In May of 2015, the New York Times Magazine ran a really in-depth article about 
shoes, and uh, the federal shoes in particular. And they talked about this prisoner uh, in the shoe at uh, Florence, the, the Supermax in Florence, Colorado. And this guy had been in the shoe for like 18 years. So no human contact for 18 years. Well, as you might assume, he went insane, right? So he got to the point where, you know, you've got like a two or three inch wide window in your, uh, in your cell, just barely enough to get a little bit of light. He was able to smash that window and eat the broken glass just so that they would have to take him to a hospital where he could talk to another human being. Shame on us. Oh, shame on us. Shame on us. Shame on us for pretending that we're better. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, that's, yeah. And then we wonder why our recidivism rates are so high. Yeah. Because we're not reforming anybody. No. It's, we're just torturing them. Yeah. And, it's, and we moved slavery, basically, into mm-hmm. the prisons because most people don't appreciate that the... 13th Amendment actually doesn't oh, yeah. ban all slavery. No, it because, specifically exempts yeah. prisoners. Yeah, and that's that's a big you know a, a big thing behind that. Like I, I joke sometimes that I want to run for Congress on an anti-slavery platform, so everybody's <laughs> going to be like, "What do you mean?" And um, but it is it, it, it's that incarceral system. It, 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 and what's the what's the uh, like? theory of punishment behind a lot of these statutes and these crimes, I feel like the judges don't have any, like it's very arbitrary. Oh, listen, I'll tell you about arbitrary. There was a woman working for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Honolulu, GS-12, mid-level nobody. And uh, so she and a friend of hers went into business together. They bought a boat And on the weekends, they would take tourists out to look for whales. They were out on one of these little charters that they did every weekend, and they came across um, an orca feeding on a seal carcass. And so everybody runs to the side of the boat, and they're taking pictures. Somebody whistles, right? Just to, in a silly attempt to keep the whale up near the surface so they could take better pictures. A couple of weeks later... At her uh, apartment, FBI, she opens the door and uh, they said, are you so-and-so? Yes. You have this boat? Yes. You take tourists out on the boat? Yes. Did you whistle at the whale? She said, no. I think somebody did. But she said, you know what? I videotape all of these, uh, all of these whale watching trips and I sell the DVDs to the tourists. I can give you the DVD. So she does. Couple of months pass. Six o'clock in the morning, they bust down the door of her apartment and they arrest her and they charge her with a violation of the Endangered Species Act for interfering with the feeding of a wild animal. It's a felony. As you might imagine, the Department of Commerce fires her immediately because oh, yeah. she's under yeah. FBI, yeah. you know, investigation. Destroys her career right at the gate. Right. right out of the gate. So she loses her career. She loses her federal pension. She loses the whale watching business. Her partner walks away from her. They have to sell the boat. She goes bankrupt. Five years pass. And then they finally reduce it down to a misdemeanor if she just takes a guilty plea. They ruined her. They ruined her life. And this kind of thing happens every, every single, single day. day. 
and all own. over America. And and you don't see it in the court cases because most stuff is going to a plea. Exactly. And the law. So it doesn't yeah. become part of case law. It doesn't become case law. I, I, and, and if 90, 98% of things are going to a plea and the law professors are only studying case law, what does that actually tell you about what law is actually operative? Mm-hmm. Because what's going on for people who don't know, John, I'm sure you experienced this, is oh, that yeah. when you're taking a plea, first of all, the evidentiary standards are, are preponderance of the evidence. They're not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's basically yes. an inquisitorial system, not an adversarial system. That's right. And once you sign that damn piece of paper saying you're guilty, nobody gives a shit about you. And they just, no. you are a scheduling problem. Because you admitted to it. You admitted to it. And the government comes in at your sentencing. And I don't know if this happened to you, but they just pile on all this crap, something you didn't grade school, something oh, yeah. you're, some, something that one of your enemies told oh, yeah, them. Yeah, and, yeah and, sure. And then the judge is like, believes it all. And poof. I had something called an 11C1C plea. Oh, yeah. So my, my lawyers said it was novel, right? So this is a plea where the agreement is written in stone and the judge can't change it. So yeah. the plea was for 30 months. I would do 23. And we go into Judge Brinkema's uh, courtroom, and she said, this is an 11C1C plea. She, now, she was a Reagan appointee in 1986. She's been around a long time. And she said, I have never had an 11C1C plea in my entire career. And she looks at me and she says, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. And if I could, Mr. Kiriaku, I would sentence you to 10 years. And I thought to myself, yeah, well, you can't. Yeah. But, I mean, every national security journalist in Washington was in the courtroom on that day. They, they were all there to hear what she had to say. So she came out of it looking really tough. And I walked out with 23 months. Yeah, and that's something that people don't appreciate is how the judiciary plays to the oh, press. Oh, sure. And, and that's, you know, that's a double-edged sword for them because they also, I feel like, do respond to social pressure. Yes, they you, do. You know? and, yes, and, indeed. And, and, and that's, you know, unfortunately uh, part of the equation when you're trying to handle these, particularly in a case like yours with the very high publicity and everything. I mean, that's a really great deal. Your lawyers yeah. got you right and here. We are like, oh, yeah. yeah, 30 months in jail. That's great. Yeah. Right. Like what the hell? Yeah, right? That for, was great. For what? Giving an ABC news interview. No, an intercept. Yeah. It was the intercept. Right? No, no. It was and ABC then, news and, and the New York times and the New York times. So yeah. Was that, was that Eric Lishblad with the New York times or who was that? No, it was uh, Scott Shane. Okay. Okay. Who apologized profusely for the next three years. Well, at least wrote me letters in prison. Called me as soon as I got home. I was like, stop apologizing. I'm a big boy. I went into it with my eyes open. And he didn't, he didn't lie to you about... Uh, no, and he didn't lie to me and go yeah. behind my back. Yeah, like The Intercept did. Yeah. That's a story. I just hear so many stories about The Intercept and, you know... Oh, they're... It, they're it's, what is it's, the, it's, it's an outlaw organization. They're pretending to be some sort of investigative... They're not. Like, and they're not. They're, they're not. They're in the pocket of the FBI. Or they're so unbelievably stupid yeah. that they just... They just sort of hand everything they have over to the FBI inadvertently, one or the other. Yeah, or both, right? Or both. Like, like it's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like that toxic, toxic right. mix. And then there, there was like a certain kind of, like when I went over to their offices, they were like very like, you know, downtown. Oh, modern, yeah, yeah, very cool, like, very sleek. We're, we're cooler than you kind of shit. Right, and, and the exposed brick walls. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, but uh-huh. then I'm like, yeah. you guys are corporate fascists, basically. They are. So like, I didn't they get along with them, like... You know, and I'm a fucking capitalist, right? Like that's that's you know that's the thing I think I feel like people don't understand about us. Like we really love this country, sure, and, and that's why you know I I consider you a patriot because what you did, you're like we're violating our fundamental values. Thank you, and I, you know I, I say this all the time. 
On that day in January of 1990, when I was at the CIA with my right hand up in the air, swearing to uphold and protect the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I hate the thought that I was the only one who actually meant it. You know, we're either going to be a nation of laws or we're not. But we can't pretend to be and then break the law and expect everybody to just look away. Yeah, and and they torture or something they specifically singled out in the Eighth Amendment. Listen, we executed Japanese soldiers who waterboarded American POWs uh, in the Second World War. That was a death penalty offense to waterboard somebody. In... In January of 1968, the Washington Post ran a front-page photograph of an American soldier waterboarding a North Vietnamese prisoner. On the day that that picture was published, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, ordered an investigation. The soldier was arrested. He was charged with torture, convicted, and sentenced to 20 years at Leavenworth. The law never changed. We changed. We changed. We changed because everybody went crazy. So how is it that... This is a death penalty crime in 1946 that it's worthy of 20 years in a penitentiary in 1968, but then in 2002, it's somehow magically legal. 9-11. 9-11. And, but that, then there we betray our values because I don't think we... we it, what it seems to me is like torture is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, and if anything, it's the best recruiting tool that our enemies have. I was on this awful... Laura Ingram's show on Fox uh, one time. Ingram's. And um, she says to me, you seem like a nice enough guy, but I really hate your position on this. I just think you're wrong. And I said, listen, Laura, if you want to torture people, that's fine. That's on you. But you've got to change the law. Yeah. Right? If you want to have torture as part of your policy arsenal, then have the guts to go to Capitol Hill and say, I want to make torture legal. Why will nobody do that? Yeah, we fought a revolution over it. This is that. That's we're, this is the system we've given ourselves. Yeah, I mean the crown just used to torture the hell out of people. Yeah. I, I remember going to the was at the Tower of London. There's that hill where they used to execute people on the yes. top, and they told me that you had to say you had to thank the king. You know, right before you get killed, you had to thank the king. You know, for being so great oh and God. meeting out justice, or they would kill your entire family. Oh my right? God! Right, and, and it's just like it's it's it, and it's really just goes to this primal brutality it's not it's not any rational thing yet they're they like if you ask them i think their theory of punishment or what like what they wouldn't be able to be coherent about it because it's it's not rational it's just this like primal yeah urge to desire for vengeance yeah desire yeah was Mm -hmm. it what Nietzsche say beware of anyone in whom uh the desire to punish is strong oh yeah you know like and, and like you expose a constitutional violation and you're the one going to jail. All yeah. the people are doing it. Are, yeah. No, no, they, they all got off scot-free. Yeah. There, there were 14 of us who were invited to undergo torture training at the CIA. Of the 14, I was the only one who said no. I said, I have a serious moral and ethical problem with this, and I think it's illegal. They had torture training? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was like the syllabus for that? Like that's like what are they? What's oh, the, you you start with what was called the attention grasp, which is where you grab somebody by the lapels and give them a shake, and then it went to the belly slap, which is an open-handed smack in the belly. It makes a cracking sound and it stings and leaves a little handprint. Then the facial slap, and then it went all the way up to 
walling, which is where you slam somebody's head against the wall, and waterboarding, and sleep deprivation, and the cold cell, and and then here we start, you know, doing these things, and we're like, "Oops, killed the prisoner. Sorry, my bad." Oh, right. like, okay, well, just bury him outside. Nobody ever was prosecuted for that. We killed six people in those torture sessions. Nobody was ever prosecuted. The Justice Department never said we could murder people like that in cold blood. Yeah, there goes due process, right? There goes due process. Yeah. I've I've said this for years, and I've said it publicly many times, uh, including in in an interview with the BBC. If Abu Zubaydah and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi Benishib and Abdurrahim Anashidi and all these other guys at Guantanamo, if they are the bad monsters that we say they are, then let them face their accusers in a court of law before a jury of their peers. Just because we don't like their politics doesn't mean that they don't get the same rights that everybody else does. Again, we're either a nation of laws or we're not. Yeah. One or the other. Yeah. Yeah. But like after 9-11, everybody lost yeah. their mind. I was they in did. New York that day. You know, I remember thinking crazy stuff on that day. I remember thinking, oh my God, did they have any idea what they've done? Yeah. Yeah. I said to my... She was my girlfriend at the time. She became my wife. I said... Do you have any idea how many millions of people are going to die for this? Yeah. And that's what happened. That is what happened. You know, because, you know, what we made Iraq, yeah. right? Well, you were an expert in Iraq, too, right? Yeah, you, that was uh, my specialty at the agency. Uh, yeah, that must have been. Uh, what did you think when we, after 9-11, when we just decided, uh, we decided, okay, we're not going to. Re- well, I'll tell you a funny story about that. I had gotten back from Pakistan, and on I, I was the chief of counterterrorism operations in Pakistan. And you did, you read, did you lead raids? I read on the internet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was, were you in them or you just you were like the head of them? Like oh, no, we were busting down doors with battering rams and everything. Oh, damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But so they're going to punish you for this interview, but like you did oh, all the service well, for our Brigham country. Well, said, said any evidence of previous heroism is irrelevant. Those were her exact words. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She didn't, she didn't give a shit at all. No, she did, right? Wow. So on Why the screen, is she so bitter? I know, that's a I know, question. Right? For, like, she's like some really bitter person. Oh, she's an awful, awful little... Yeah. little she's little, almost like a prison guard in a yeah. robe. <laughs> so on the strength of the Abu Zubaydah capture, I got promoted, and I became the, uh, the deputy director of operations executive assistant. Which you should have, because Abu Zubaydah was a third in line in, in, in Al-Qaeda. In Al-Qaeda, yeah. So my first day on the job, I was like, okay, what are we doing? He said, you know what? I can't tell you yet. You have to go up to the seventh floor and sign a bunch of secrecy agreements and then come back down and we'll talk about what we're going to do. I said, okay. So I go upstairs and they have all these six secrecy agreements laid out. I have to sign each one saying, you know, till the day I die, I'll take these secrets to my grave. I'll never speak of them. So I sign all six and I'm like, okay, what's up? I'm excited, right? What's up? What are we doing? The guy takes a deep breath and he says, Early next year, we are going to invade Iraq. We're going to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And we're going to open the world's largest air force base so that we can move all of our air assets out of Saudi Arabia and deprive Osama bin Laden of the ability to say that we're polluting the land of the two holy mosques. Damn. I was so dumbfounded that I said, like all I could think to even blurt out, I said, but we haven't caught Bin Laden yet. And he says, John, the decision's been made. It's going to happen. And he went on to say, 
there are two sides on this. And, and this is what took up most of my time over the next year. The pro-invasion side was the Office of the Vice President. Yeah, Cheney. Uh-huh. The Office of the Secretary of Defense, OSD, uh, Don Rumsfeld, and the National Security Council. The anti-invasion faction was the Office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah, interesting. interesting which should say a lot. Yeah, yeah. The CIA and the State Department. It's kind of odd that we're invading a Shiite country for an act of Sunni terrorism. I thought that seemed to I, me... Imagine, and I'll tell you another thing. Um, I, I was George Tenet's morning uh, intelligence briefer for that year, so I'd, I'd get to the office 2.45 every day, in the morning, 2.45, every day for a year, six days a week, and go through literally ten to 12,000 cables that had come in overnight. I'd pare them down to about a half a dozen and then brief George on those six most important issues that were so important that day that he had to know because then he was going to go to the White House 30 minutes later and brief the president. So the day before the invasion of Iraq, (laughs) we're doing a secure video teleconference, and I'm the note taker. So George is at the head of the table, and I'm sitting directly behind his right shoulder taking notes. And on all the screens are what are called the principals, the members of the principals committee. So the meeting was chaired by Dick Cheney, and Condi Rice was there, and Colin Powell was there, and General, I forget who it was from CENTCOM was there, and the head of NSA, General, I don't even remember his name anymore, but everybody is represented there. And then the National Security uh, Staff, the Senior Director for Iraq and the Senior Director for the Persian Gulf. So Cheney starts off and says, you know, General, whatever his name was, CENTCOM commander, why don't you start us off with the briefing? And again, George is just sitting there at the table with his arms crossed. And uh, the CENTCOM commander says, well, elements of this unit are moving here and elements of this unit are moving there and we have this division that's here and the first army corps is moving there and blah 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 order of battle they call it and then he says if all goes as planned now this was the day before the Iraqi invasion so this is like March whatever it was he says if all goes as planned we can be in Tehran by August (laughs) and George like I say, he's just sitting there like a statue. He leans forward, he turns off his microphone, and he turns to me and says, did he say Tehran, or did he say Baghdad? Yeah. Uh, and I said, he said Tehran. And he says, have these people lost their minds? And then he turns the microphone back on and just folds his hands and sits there. So at the end of the meeting, I, I go back to the deputy director's office. And I said, did you know we were going to invade Iran? And he goes, ooh, are they still talking about that? Wow. And I said, yeah. I said, General, what's his face? Said we could be in Tehran by by August. And he goes, we're not going to invade Iran. He said, these guys don't know the first thing about the Middle East. Nothing. One of these idiots, he was the senior director at the NSC, said giddily in that same meeting, as soon as we cross the border, they're going to throw flowers at us. 
Sort of like uh, Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I had a degree in Middle Eastern studies at the time. I had lived in the Middle East for five years, and I'm like, you guys are the policymakers. You don't know anything about the Arabs. Nothing. And you speak Arabic too, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's a yeah. Beautiful language. It that, is. That, that, that. Wow. Oh yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. Wow. Yeah, like, I, I couldn't stand any of those Bush neocons. They were all nuts. Oh, yeah. It was a Wolfowitz. Oh, Wolfowitz. Oh, yeah. And now it's like, the worst. After Trump, Cheney seems like, 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 I'm almost like The Trump. voice of reason. I'm like, yeah. What do you think? Oh, man. Man. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, man. So, I mean, there's, I mean, what you, it's basically like every, everything that you, people cynically thought of a left was kind of true, it sounds like. Yeah, right. With those guys. Right. It was all true. And it was a mess. Mm-hmm. And, it and remember, through that whole period, we're still fighting a completely separate war in Afghanistan. Which we, we needed to go with. Which there. was a righteous war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We needed to go yes. there, I think. Yeah. Yes, I agree. But it was like that, that, but that they took it so fast, and, 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 like to a place of their own self-interest or whatever. Their... Well, there's kind of a famous story about Richard Pearl. If you remember Richard, yeah, Pearl. Remember Richard Pearl. Richard Pearl was one of the original ne- neocons. He never changed his party affiliation from Democrat. Right? Lifelong Democrat. He was a top foreign policy advisor to Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Oh, yeah. Like, right? like Senator Moynihan from New York. He's a right. legend in New York. Yeah. Well, there's this famous story that on September 12th, Pearl was at the White House telling Cheney's aides, you know we have to invade Iran- Iraq, right? Like, it, it, 9-11 had nothing, nothing to, to do, do with nothing whatsoever to yeah. do with Iraq. But Pearl saw his opening, and man, he ran with it. Yeah, and you, you just, the way you just have to, I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert in the Middle East, but I know the Sunni-Shiai split, right? And, like, and like, Saddam Hussein, as bad as he was, was a bulwark against Iranian expansionism. Yeah. You know, at the CIA, and, and, you know, this is probably a violation of international law, too, but the CIA position was, if we can overthrow Saddam Hussein, we need to replace him with a Sunni general. Right, a Sunni general who is going to incorporate Shia Muslims into the government where Saddam oppressed them, just so we could have somebody to keep the Iranians at bay. Meanwhile, we, the CIA set up the whole Iranian problem with their their, their coup. With, who was that? Mug, Mug, uh, uh, Mossadegh. Yeah, in, Mossadegh. In yeah, Bob Shear. Bob Shear told me, yeah, fifty, yeah, fifty three. Yeah. Bob Shear told me a fantastic story when he was a young go getter. Uh, journalist at the LA Times, he was fascinated by this story of the overthrow of Mossadegh in Iran. And everybody knew that it was Kermit Roosevelt, the son of, of Theodore Roosevelt, who had actually done the overthrow. He was the, a senior CIA officer. The son of Theodore Roosevelt was named Kermit? Kermit, yeah. <laughs> okay, Kermit. Pausing on that. And so um, nobody had ever interviewed Kermit Roosevelt. So Bob told me he found a Washington, D.C. phone book, found Kermit Roosevelt, he was like 80-something years old, living in some nursing home here in Washington. And he called him and said, hey, would you sit for an interview for the Los Angeles Times? I want the whole story about the overthrow of the Iranian government. And Roosevelt gave it to him. It was his first big scoop. And Roosevelt said that he'd had a long life and a long CIA career, and that was the only decision that he ever regretted. He said it was the worst mistake he had ever made in his life was agreeing to overthrow the Iranian government. And here we are, what, 70 years later. We're still paying for it. And we still haven't recovered from it. Yeah. 
Yeah, because the Shah was quite the... I, I lived in Iran for like a wow. year when I was a kid. I wow. was in like five or six, right before the revolution. Wow. So I remember... That's what some of my first memories are of the Shah and how like just over the top yeah. he was. And then... Um, yeah, that's crazy what we did there. And, and like because he basically nationalized the oil companies is what... And they, we did it as a favor to the British. Because oh. the Americans weren't losing any money from the nationalization of Iranian oil. Right. It was it was BP. Oh, BP had that concession that they were going to lose. Oh, so I didn't realize the that. British MI6 came to us and asked us, "Will you overthrow the Iranian government for us? Because we're going to lose our shirts on this oil deal." And we did it. And most people are, uh, um, uh, like in in Britain, are um, uh, their their pensions are invested in BP oil. I heard. Oh, sure. Yeah, because oh, I remember yeah. when that the Gulf, uh, the BP Gulf. Yeah, they all went broke. They all went went broke, yeah. but that's uh, I didn't know that. And um, you good on time? Are you okay? Or uh, we could wrap or whatever we want. I'm happy to. I, to, I'll I get was to supposed it. to go to the uh, to oh, the okay. Belmarsh Tribunal, but I think it's over in like 20 minutes. I'm happy to like just like put on a closer for this, and then and and because this is great. I feel like oh. we've got a lot of stuff. Oh, and, thank you. I appreciate um, it. Um, so let me just pause for a second, and I'll thank give you. Uh, a closer. Oh, thanks, John. I really, really enjoyed this, and I uh, really the, the pleasure is mine. This is a lot of fun. I'm so glad we connected on Twitter. Yeah, this glad is glad we got the chance to do this. I, I got to tell you a funny story. The person who um, sent that it was somebody on Twitter. I will go. Find, I will go find their name because I want to give him a shout out. Was like you know, Tor and John, you guys should talk, right? <laughs> and I thought, John, I thought that the uh, um, it was on your podcast. You had some back. I wasn't like really paying attention, right? And then I'm like emailing with you, and then I realized, oh, John thinks he's going to interview. Me, you know, be interviewed by me on my podcast, and I don't have a podcast. Oh, yet. neither do I. So you are the first <laughs> guest on our first podcast because I was like, that there is, is no hilarious. way I am missing this opportunity. Oh, and thank I'm you. So I had no idea. I don't have a podcast either. This is great. I am so so glad we did. <laughs> and this. I'm here. I'm admiring your very sophisticated equipment and everything. Well, I've just, I've, I record a lot, like and stuff, and I've like, you know, kind of like had false launches before. But this is a great way to launch it. I hope that we can come back and talk to you again because oh, I look forward to that. You've got such a rich body of experience. We've just like just touched the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, we jumped around from to uh, from from one good topic to another. There's a lot to talk about. John, thank you again. Thank you, and um, I look forward to future conversations. Oh, it'll be fun. Thanks. Well, that's it for this inaugural edition of In Limine. Thank you for listening. Before we go, I'd like to give a shout out to our law firm's associate, Michael Hazard, for being such a trooper and helping out with this. And I'd also like to give a shout out to James Brown, if that is your real name, from Twitter for tweeting at both uh, John and I and getting us together. Um, James, thanks a lot. Uh, it was a really a lot of fun, and I think you've launched a podcast here. Uh, I'm now going to go through my Rolodex and uh, reach out to some of the people I've had the privilege to meet over my last decade of uh, practice in this space and um, hopefully have some more interesting conversations. Um, if you like what you heard, you can subscribe at toreckland.substack.com. That's just spelled T-O-R-E-K-E-L-A-N-D. Um, if you want to look up information on our law firm, you can uh, find that at www.toreckland.com. I hope you don't need us because it 
means you're probably in trouble with the feds. But if you are in trouble with the feds, give us a ring. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did.